Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and thank you for joining us on Battle Walks. We are back. It's a new year, a new season of the podcast. Lots of new and exciting things coming up. Joining me all the way from France, as always, is my very popular co-host. It's Pete Smith. Pete, <laughs> welcome back. Thank you very much, Matt, and a happy new year to you. Good to be uh, back recording again. I was just wondering the other day, uh, is, is it all of January you're allowed to wish people a happy new year? I, is, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule, but it seems that sometimes you get into mid-February and people are still wishing you a happy new year. Or maybe it's the I first think, time you speak to someone in the year. Yeah, I've always worked on that. First time you speak to them, say happy new year, but sometimes I forget. So, well, so it could be November yeah, <laughs> if you indeed. haven't spoken to someone. Um, yeah. Mate, how is everything going in France? It's um, COVID, I know, is causing still a few dramas, but hopefully we're getting close to the end. I mean, I assume it's been a cold winter. Um, England are getting thoroughly thrashed in the cricket. So, you know, things are almost <laughs> heading back to normal. It's uh, It's been a terrible winter. I mean, with the, the, the latest outbreak, which thankfully now appears to be uh, getting towards the end and the closure of the border for Brits getting into France again. Uh, yeah, it was looking fairly gruesome. But that's all finished. Uh, finished last weekend or the weekend just gone. Uh, so we're back to uh, we're back to now normal uh, normal touring again. Britain is easing off on the uh, the number of tests you have to have, so it's all going in the right direction. And uh, certainly, inquiries have started flowing in for uh, for the for the touring. So uh, yeah, fingers crossed that nothing happens. It's excellent news, mate. Whenever I've been in the Somme where you live during the winter, I always cast my mind back to that winter of 1916, 1917, and just the accounts from those soldiers of, I think it was the coldest winter in 50 years, or I've heard a few statistics like that bandied around, but 
one of the greatest hardships of the entire war for many soldiers was that freezing winter of 1617. I mean, what's it, paint a picture for us, for those of us who are currently sitting in sunny Australia or other parts of the world. What is a winter in the Somme like, a cold winter? How does it, how does it affect you? Well, at one time, I could have, I could have literally said, oh, it's, it's like this, but uh, because of, uh, I always call it global difference rather than, than, than anything else. So the weather just doesn't stay constant. So we have still very cold winters here. A couple of years ago, we had the, uh, the beast from the east, and we were at minus 5, minus 10, minus 15. It was absolutely horrendous, but dry as a bone, and the air was literally sucked dry of any moisture. So there wasn't even any frost. Um, there was nothing to freeze uh, because there was no water in the air. So that was extraordinary. Since then, we've had a couple of, uh, uh, or previously to that, not since that, but we had some very heavy snow. We've had really deep snow at various times, but not for a few years now. We're actually probably getting on for 10 years since we've had really deep snow here. The, this winter is actually odd. It's fairly mild, but it's hideously foggy and miserable. Uh, it's probably the worst kind of weather for for literally exploring the battlefields because mist and fog are a, a real problem if you're trying to explain what's going on. Uh, and it's damp. It's that horrible damp that gets in under your, under your clothing. It, it's just there all the time. So not particularly heavy rain, even though we have had some heavy rain. But it is mild, you have to say. And if it stays like this, I'm going to have plants that are going to go right the way through the winter that would normally either die back or die completely your annuals and uh, so yeah extraordinary weather at the moment but I would rather have it a little bit colder and a little bit crisper and we've had a couple of I managed to take some lovely photographs of my local cemetery Bulls Road Cemetery a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago when we had some really crisp dry slightly misty mornings with the sun coming up that red glow fantastic there's some beautiful photography it was one of the great joys of, uh, of of actually living here, being able to get out on the battlefields and take those photos that you always want to try and hope to get when you're visiting just for a week or a few days. So that that was uh, that was that was great. Um, but yeah, it's uh, well, we've gone through the longest night now, so it's uh, it can only improve and get warmer. So we're going in the right direction with the weather as well. I often ponder that philosophical question of why we visit the battlefields. Like, why do we do it? Why do we feel compelled to walk the ground? Because when you think about it, it should be enough. If we read a first-hand account from someone about what they went through, or we even if we watch a documentary or a movie or something, you know, this this should be enough for us as human beings to to understand and to relate to it. But it's not. We have to get out and we have to walk the ground and stand where they stood. And I often ponder that question of why it's so important to those of us that are so into history. And I think that's what you've just explained. There is part is a big part of the reason that the climate is a huge part. If we we can read all we like about the winter of sixteen seventeen and how hard it was on yep. the men, there is nothing like you know even us even us soft modern people you know being out in the middle of a field on a freezing day and just feeling that cold yep. seep into your bones just yep. gives you a whole different perspective. And that's that's for a couple of hours in the middle of the yep. day. I, 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 I shudder to think what it must have been like to live in a trench yep. for weeks at a time yeah. in those conditions. Great, totally. I actually did that exact thing today, uh, mid mid afternoon. I thought, oh, I want to get out, and stretch my legs. The children's it's a it's a Sunday, so the children are off school and they, they just settle down to a film. And I thought, well, I don't fancy watching a film. I'm going to go out for a walk. And I'd noticed that just outside the village there was a bit of ploughed field that uh, has just become very walkable. And it's one that uh, certainly my older boy, when he was here, he'd found bits there. So I thought I'll just walk out to there and again not wearing enough clothing really and the, this horrible misty damp weather was soaking into the clothing I was getting kind of fairly miserable so I picked up the pace a little bit walked across this little patch of field walked up and down it half a dozen times picked up uh, the magazine from a Lien field full of bullets that uh, was laying on the floor there rusting away 
Um, I took it home, just washed it off so it's outside, just have a look at it before uh, I put it somewhere in the garden. I normally put these things somewhere in the garden. And, um, yeah, so just ex- extraordinary. And you're right, you instantly, you can't help it, but you think, yeah, that's fine. I'm coming back to a nice warm warm house. We've got the log-burning fire going, and uh, no, it's, uh, it's lovely and warm. These guys did something similar in and out of the line. It was people trying to kill them, and and they're not wearing the modern clothing that we can wear, you know, the, uh, the, the waterproofs. Uh, they're wearing the basic version of, uh, of the modern Gore-Tex. And so, yeah, very different for for them. And yet little pleasures would have meant an awful lot. Just getting out of the line, people's not killing you for a little while, being able to perhaps have a, a bath somewhere that, that's warm uh, and, a, and a warmer billet around, around the stove, so uh, little pleasures. So you have to remember those little pleasures were, were greatly enhanced in times of, uh, of, of the soldiers being here. You can see why it affected them so much when they came back to civilian life, because imagine being 18, 20, 24, however old they were and enduring this experience for two or three years with the death and the destruction and the discomfort it's it's little wonder that they that they struggled to fit back into civilian life but um it's it's interesting you mentioned the mist because that ties in pretty neatly with what we're talking about today because <laughs> the, the mist the mist in the Somme is something we've yeah. all experienced anyone who spent any time over there and it can hang around a lot longer than just winter um, well into spring it hangs around and, and that's really a key one of the key elements of what we're talking about today isn't it it is indeed. We're going to be talking about the 21st of March in 1918 uh, when the Germans uh, uh, break through and start rolling up our line. And what enhanced, and we'll talk about it in greater detail, what enhanced their attack was was mist. They attacked in the dawn um, and uh, very, very misty. Well, in fact, it would be on mist. It was foggy, a foggy morning, enhanced with gas as well. So thicken it up a bit and smoke and uh, yeah, and, and sneak through our positions. But more about that when we get talking about the uh, the podcast. It's a fascinating chapter of the war. It's probably one of the... It's, it's a weird one for me because it's one of the ones that I'm most intrigued with, this whole element of the German spring offensive. Um, I've always found the German side of the story quite fascinating. I mean, you've got to be careful. I want to be careful how I phrase this because obviously this was, these were the enemy soldiers and yeah. obviously with the World War II, uh, you know, tarnishing the, the story. But in terms of the German fighting forces, I've always been quite fascinated with how they went about things and, you know, they were good soldiers. And this was probably one of the peaks of what they achieved during the First World War. Um, and yet, at the same time, it's a chapter that I, I, I absolutely don't know enough about. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. It was a big action. It was late in the war. It was spread over a big area, complicated, a lot of moving parts. So I must admit that even I don't know enough about what is known as the German Spring Offensive. But it's a, it's, it's a yeah. critical part of the story, isn't it? Well, I've always, uh, you know, I've had an interest in the Great War since I, I was a young boy, and it's always one that's really kind of intrigued me because I find it, I have to say, I find it horrifying, uh, and I find it horrifying from the pon- point of view of the men in the front line on that morning when the Germans attacked. They knew that the Germans were going to attack, and they'd known for, for quite some time that this attack was coming. And it was like Russian roulette as you rotated in and out of static front line positions facing the Hindenburg line. Were you going to be in the front line when the attack took place? And I just find that it's just a, a horrific extra stress on top of all the other stresses that you really didn't want to be in the front line when the German attacked because there was absolutely no doubt we couldn't hold the Germans. 
it was going to be a war of of slowly falling back um, a war of attrition killing as many germans as you as we fell back and slowly slowing them down knowing that they haven't got the uh, the amount of supplies that we have and stores and you know everything is really falling to bits slowly for the germans and this is definitely the last roll of the dice but could we in fact hold them or were they going to be stronger than, than we believe? But for whatever, for those guys in the front line, the, they just knew that they were going to be sacrificed. You know, and they'd all been told to the last man on the last round. You know, it, were, it was literally uh, no going back and uh, you know, stand and fight to the end if you can. Of course, a lot didn't and a lot couldn't, um, but an awful lot died doing it. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Just one little position, just one little story uh, during this period. Well, we should do a shout-out at this time as well to a movie called Journey's End, which uh, came out a few years ago but tells this story very, very well of the British men in the front line expecting the Germans to fall on them at any time. Let's go back a little bit, Pete. Paint the picture. What, what was the lead-up to the German Spring Offensive? Okay, so what we have, uh, two things happening that are going to be fairly crucial. The first one is for us, for the Allies, we have a massive manpower shortage. Now, that's across all of the Empire forces. Uh, Australia, problems in cons- uh, recruiting because of lack of conscription. In Britain, we've got a, a lack of a lack of people to conscript. And so what we're doing is we are conscripting 18-year-olds. They're being enlisted, put into uh, what are called graduated battalions, and it's graduation by age. You're enlisted as you as you basically hit 18. Uh, very rudimentary training and getting them across to, to France. But there are even issues w- uh, with that as well, that they're not arriving as quick as they, they should be due to the fact that Lloyd George is perceiving that there's a, a general election coming up. And if the casualties keep at the level that they are then he's going to have a, have a problem in being re-elected. And so what he does, he slows down the transfer of troops to the Western Front. It was a nonsensical thing to do, but, but uh, to him it seemed to make some, make some kind of sense. So we've got that going on as well. Um, we've got the arrival of the Americans. The Americans uh, obviously joined the war in 1917, but it's really at this point that they are pumping literally tens of thousands of men uh, coming across the Atlantic and arriving on the French coast. Uh, they need re-equipping and retraining for the western front so that's one of the issues so it's taking time and they have not yet there's no offensive the jet the the um, americans have not yet taken part in any major action or in fact any action at all so they're arriving and, and being built up but the germans are aware of this and they are aware that the numbers are phenomenal and what is what is coming they know by now there is absolutely no doubt that the germans know they cannot win the war they are not going to win the war but what they're hoping is that by breaking back, by cutting off the the Empire forces, the British forces from the French, hopefully rolling the line up and possibly pushing them into sea into the sea, think Dunkirk, then uh, that would be the best that they could hope for. But even if they can split the British from the French, then there is a hope that they will be in a better position to dictate terms when an armistice is agreed. So they are aware that there is going to be some kind of they're hoping some kind of peace treaty taking place or some kind of cessation of hostilities and at that point they will be in a better position to dictate the terms. Can I just jump in, what? Pete, to say you can. The, um, the the Germans, you can understand why they thought like this because they had the same success with the Russians the year before. Yeah. The, the, exactly. they, they'd come off pulling... I mean, it's a bit of a... You'd think it was a bit of a, far, a far-fetched trick they were trying to pull, but exactly the same thing had happened with the Russians the previous year. 
Yeah, and and so they were, and they, and of course we now have the, the Russians have gone into a revolution uh, w- with the the treaty with the Bolsheviks. It means they can start transferring uh, troops from the Eastern Front. Now this story has changed slightly in in recent years. At one time it was believed that all of these, I think it's fifty divisions, if I remember right. I'm just quickly scanning my notes and I can't see where I scribbled it down. Perhaps I didn't, but I think it's fifty divisions that the they were hoping to transfer from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And in many years ago, I would have told the story, yes, those divisions were thrown into the front line and it was those divisions that were at the forefront of the attack which will take place that we're going to be discussing on the 21st of, of March in 1918. But we now know that's not the case. These guys had fought on the Eastern Front, very different to the Western Front. They'd also been pilfering troops over a period of time. The better troops have been transferred to the Western Front for quite some time. So these weren't always the hottest troops on the Eastern Front. So what we're getting is a a whole load of men, but that is allowing the men that have been fighting on the Western Front to be taken out the line, to be properly uh, rested, and to be retrained in new tactics. And these new tactics are the shock troops, the storm troopers, which are designed to punch through our lines and to keep on going. So uh, lightly equipped, but heavily weaponed. So lots of grenades, uh, lots of ammunition, or as much as they can carry, and keep moving forward. Do not stop. Go around uh, uh, redoubt positions and keep going. So the new stormtroopers, this new um, this new development of warfare. Very few tanks. I have to say, the Germans have really given up on tanks at this point. Uh, we'll talk about that perhaps a little later. But these stormtroopers, that's that's the key. So these guys are going to be thrown in on that 21st of March with the idea that they'll punch through and punch through. They are going to do so. Lots of things happening. The other thing to say is we have so many tactical changes here. Guns now well able to fire without being able to see what they're shooting at. So they're map shooting from both sides, flash spotting, range finding, sound ranging. We've got so many technical developments on the war, on the uh, on the battlefield. This is a very different battlefield uh, to to anything that went before. Where now it feels much more like a, a almost a Second World War battlefield. And the stormtroopers are obviously they, they are the uh, the precursors to the Blitzkrieg of the Second World War. Well, that was a question. I've got two big questions to ask you about this chapter of history, Pete. And that was going to be the second one, but I'll ask it first now. I've heard that before. The, the the tactics developed by the Germans in 1918 were the forerunners of Blitzkrieg in 1940. Is that the case or is that a bit of an exaggeration? No, it's an exaggeration, but it's still a good thing to say. It, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> well, it's definitely an exaggeration because because there aren't the tanks. There aren't the tanks and the motorised uh, troops and there are not the, the, the Stuka dive bombers and... Uh, you know, having said that, the, the aerial tactics are changing, so we've got an awful lot of uh, of, of now strafing, ground strafing by aircraft, um, but the major thing still is communication is still a problem, and, and, and it will be in the Second World War, you have to say, but communication is still, for both sides, is going to be a, a problem for fast-moving Germans in the advance, how on earth do you communicate with the troops on the ground at the forefront of the advance, for the British on the back foot falling back, how on earth do you communicate as to what's happening in the front line as you're being pushed back uh, by telephone communication? Well, we still haven't got proper radio communication. It's coming in. Aircraft are now being uh, are now able to be directed uh, from the ground and vice versa. So there are improvements in in that uh, wireless communication, but it's still not re- not really uh, uh, doesn't really work particularly well on the battlefield, even of 1918. As we've said many times on the podcast, people have heard us say this, that <clears throat> in 1914, and I wasn't the one that came up with this, it was 
historians much more talented than me that came up with this, but it's really stuck with me. In 1914, a soldier from the Napoleonic Wars would have recognised what was happening on the battlefield of 1914. By 1918, a modern soldier of today would recognise elements that were occurring on the battlefield. And I think that's true in a generalisation, but the two big areas we always talk about that incredibly hampered the ability to fight a modern war in 1918 were the two we always go on about, communication and transport, the two that we always talk about. And that was extremely well illustrated in the German Spring Offensive, that, as you've already touched on, communication, it was just impossible. Without proper radio communication, it was impossible to give timely updates to artillery and commanders about what was happening yeah. in the front line. And that was the same issue that they that had hampered the Battle of the Somme in 1916, um, and it was still continuing in 1918. And the other one, of yeah. course, is transport. It's all very well for men on foot to advance quickly and to take over machine gun positions and break through the line. How are you possibly going to bring up ammunition, food, artillery, and reinforcements to reinforce and supply them once they've broken through? It just couldn't happen in 1918 yeah. the way it could in 1940. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right uh, uh, in that uh, conversation about a soldier because certainly my time, and we're, we're going back 30 years now or more to when I, I served in the Royal Marines, and certainly at that time I could set, you could recognise the battlefield of 1918 and I would have known how to act on the battlefield of 1918 because it was still fairly similar. Gun, guns over to the flank... Uh, artillery firing over your head, uh, yes, uh, fast air and, and helicopter support. But I think it's now changing. I'm not sure you could quite say that nowadays because, of course, it's the advent of drones that are altering things considerably and will continue to alter things. And they are a completely new concept. You know, drones delivering uh, ammunition and supplies to the front lines, drones being weaponized, uh, drones being used for ob- uh, observation. I think the drone is, is, is going to really change the modern battlefield. We're going yeah, off on I, a tangent here, Matt. <laughs> no, I agree. But just on that, I think yeah. as well, The um, I've said this to so many people, that the concept that you would spend six or seven years training a pilot how to fly a jet aircraft, a fighter, for example, and then yeah. put him or her in harm's way actually over the battlefield where they could get shot down or captured, I think within the yeah. space of a very few years, that will be considered insane that those pilots will be sitting in a bunker in Nevada, because obviously the Americans are at the forefront yeah. of this, they'll be sitting in a bunker in Nevada with five or six aircraft on station over the battlefield, and as one gets destroyed, they'll just bring the next one into line. And this is obviously yeah. the future. There, I mean, the, the aircraft manufacturers are already working on pilotless planes, and very soon we will look back on the concept of putting a pilot over the battlefield as crazy. But you're right, that is a tangent, and obviously none of that was even a, even a thought no. in 1918. <laughs> um, the other couple of things I was going to mention is, firstly, you said the word stormtroop, and I've been fascinated from a linguistic perspective about this because the idea of stormtroops um, was first really used. The, the Germans came up with the term Sturmtruppen, uh in this spring offensive and obviously it's entered popular culture with star wars the the stormtroops etc yeah it's always been a word that's fascinated me because to storm a position you know now it's a verb to storm a position and it makes sense because you picture thunderclouds rolling in and a storm battering a position so that does make sense but the origins of the word it's probably all the same linguistically it's probably all the same basis but sturm in german very specifically means assault so when they said sturmtruppen they simply meant assault troops yeah, and I'm, I've exactly. never worked out whether whether we then in English adopted the word storm because it made sense because of a storm as in a weather event. It just yeah. made sense. Or yeah. whether the Germans were using it in, the, in that sense already. But I think it's fascinating. If you say Stur- Sturmtruppen, the German word, what does yeah. it mean? It just means assault troops. Um, yeah. So it's fascinating how it could well be that, I don't know this, and if, if you're a, a linguist out there and understands this, let me know. But it could well be that to storm a position 
became uh, popular in English usage because of the Sturmtruppen of the of the First World War. I, I, I don't know. It's just something, a fascinating linguistic question that I always had. It is, and I, I, I agree. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? You don't really think about it. When you say Stormtroopers, it's just you get this vision of what they look, look like, lots of grenades, uh, steel-helmeted, um, uh, rifle in uh, rifle in hand, normally wearing uh, boots and putties because they were they could move faster than in, in their jack boots, the old German leather jack boots. And there is a shortage of leather, so that's the other reason. But I think the soldiers found that uh, taking the boots off uh, of the dead British uh, soldiers and putting and using their putties, they even manufactured their own putties and using them. You very often see the stormtroopers wearing those, so they're fast moving, uh, and and I suppose the the big key the change is that they they moved around positions it's something that we will do in the 100 days as well when we counter um uh, starting on the 8th of august we've already talked i think in previous lectures at uh, podcast but there will be another one i'm sure coming up about the 8th of august and uh, and us really copying to a certain extent some of the tactics that uh, that have been used by the germans and that's one of the things that's going on all the time is we are looking at each other's tactics of figuring out how to counter them and then also taking the best from that we can use ourselves and, and turn it around and use it ourselves. So, but the stormtroopers at, at this point, uh, yeah, they're, they're good, they're tough, they're, they're quick. And, of course, what they're facing or what who is facing them is a very mixed bag. So the British soldier... Um, and this would also, uh, to a certain extent, uh, uh, would would be for all of the the empire, the Commonwealth forces. They are um, tired. They're they're worn out. They're well led by men who very often have been in for quite some some time. So the senior NCOs, the uh, the junior NCOs, generally speaking, have seen a lot of action and uh, are, are good soldiers. Um, You've got a, a mix of officers. You've got young officers just arriving, and then you've got these these young men, these eighteen year olds, not a clue what's going on, arriving and very quickly having to pick up the pace and uh, and, and integrate with the with the men that the that they're joining. So it's a real mix of tired, worn out men, of uh, men that are well trained and have seen a lot of action, and uh, and are expected to to continue leading from the front. And then what you've also got are old men. Because what they're doing is they're combing through. It's a, it was a term that they used at the time. They're combing through the rear areas and looking for men that have, not deliberately, but have not been in the front line. So they could be perhaps an ambulance driver. And, of course, women are taking over those jobs. Lorry drivers, women are taking over those jobs behind the lines. They could be part of the Army Ordnance Corps. They've been fusing shells. Well, somebody else that's that's worn out, tired or even underage, can do that. They can do that uh, that kind of job. They can be put into the front line. Even people, medics, stretcher bearers, um, they were also given a rifle and said, right, your turn, up at the front, there you go. So they're combing through, they're taking out people that have had, well, if you want to be kind of, I suppose, obvious about it, they've had a cushy war. These guys have had a cushy war because they can be replaced now by people who uh, who are worn out and, and tired. And you see this all the time when you're looking at service files and service records, you can see a man that's been in since 1914 or even early 1915. He's now working in the Labour Corps or doing a job behind the lines because he's no longer really in a, in a, in a condition to do frontline service. So there's lots of things going on, which meant that the British battalions, under strength and a real mishmash of, uh, of people in there. There's none of this cohesive unit of pals. And in fact, we're going to be to one the, the actual unit we're looking at, the 16th Battalion of the Manchester Regiment, 
is the first Manchester Pals. This is a Pals battalion. How many of the men still within it from those early days that, that rushed to join up in 1914 and, and joined the Manchester Pals, one of these, these Pals units, how many of those men are left in it? Very few. There will be very few of the original Pals still within that, that unit. You'd think they'd be fairly senior by then as well. They would have been promoted and you know, if they'd survived everything since... You yep. know, since the start of the war, they'd now be fairly senior in the in the unit. Um, yeah. What a fascinating time, Pete, as you touched on at the start of the discussion. What a terrifying and but a fascinating time when, as you say, the British knew that this attack was coming. And the reason that was is they knew the big picture. They knew that the the Russians had capitulated on the Eastern Front and there'd been a revolution and the Germans had made, you know, they'd made peace with the Germans. A little, I yeah. should say, a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory for the Germans because the Russians collapsed and were so desperate to get out of the war that they handed over a lot of territory to the Germans. Yeah, amazing. That, that, and yeah, amazing. and, what, and that, that actually required the Germans to commit a lot of men to garrison those areas of the Eastern Front. So had the Germans, had the Russians not capitulated so completely and had the Germans been a little less greedy in their demands when they made peace with yeah. the Russians, the Germans actually would have had more men more to men. send over yeah. to fight in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this battle. So an interesting, almost a Pyrrhic victory for the Germans that uh, they were a bit too greedy um, in making peace with the Russians. But as you said, mate, what a terrifying time for yep. the men to know this was coming. And everyone knew it because they saw the big picture. They saw that there was no fighting down the Eastern Front, that there were literally, I think it was half a million troops the yep. Germans can uh, now uh, free up to send over yep. to the West. And so everyone knew. They all knew that the Americans were only months away from appearing in strength on the on the Western Front and that was going to end the war. So everyone knew there was a big German assault coming. The Germans were telegraphing it far and wide that they were gearing up. That you know the yeah. Allies could see. There's no way of covering up half a million men being sent to the front. Everyone knew yeah. it was coming, and the poor buggers in the front line just had to sit there, dig their trenches as deep as they could, grip their rifles tightly, and and wait for the coming storm. Yeah, you already mentioned the book, but I, I can highly recommend it. Uh, the, uh, well, it's a it was a drama. It was a stage play. Um, it's a, it's a book as well, uh, and uh, also now a, a film. Uh, Journey's End by R. R. C. Sheriff, who had served in the Ninth East Surrey Regiment, and he'd been there. He'd been in the front line, uh, so he knew all about it. And the title Journey's End is a clue. It's about a group of officers and and their Batmen and other other people coming in and out of a, a bunker, basically in the front line with a realisation that they're there. They've lost in that uh, in that Russian roulette about who's going to be in the front line and they are going to be in the front line when the when the uh, when the when the German assault comes. And it's about these guys talking about what, what could have been if they'd survived. They've already resigned themselves to the fact that they're not going to survive the next day, so or the next two days. So it's a very moving play, uh, well worth uh, well worth uh, going to either watch it. Interestingly, Laurence Olivier, the famous uh, actor he starred in it in 1928. So again, it was it was written uh, quite soon after the war. It's it's great. I really enjoyed the movie as well. It was um, I haven't seen the play, but I in, certainly enjoyed the movie. It was it was very well done. Yeah. A very um, thought provoking. It wasn't much of a war movie in terms of fighting. No, it it's, just, it's not. No, it's, it it's was about men. It, yeah, in, yeah, it in, covers in very well combat. those feelings. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Well, let's yeah. talk about the the Manchester Pals that we're going to be following because the thing we should say about this is part of the reason that I'm not as uh, knowledgeable of the German Spring Offensive as I want to be is it was such a big action across so many sectors of the front. There's no way yeah. we'd be able to do a podcast where we walk even a small section no. of the line. So I'm sure we'll return to this topic many times during the podcast, Pete. We've been so, we've decided to focus just on a very tiny little element. 
chapter, yeah. which is hopefully representative of the experience that, that hundreds of thousands of men endured yeah. during the Spring Offensive. So tell us about yeah. the Manchester Pals we're going to be following. So it's a 16th uh, Battalion of the, the Manchester Regiment, known as the First City. So in other words, it's one of those Pals Regiments. It's the first of the Pals Regiments to be raised in Manchester, formed in the August of 1914. So you have to remember, the war was only declared on the 4th of August, so straight away... We get uh, we get a call uh, going out. We're going to need men. The city basically steps up and says, "Well, we'll fund the raising of this battalion. We'll equip them from the coffers of the of the city." And in fact, they raised overall eight battalions. So there were eight city battalions raised, and in fact, a pioneer battalion as well from just outside the city. So again, it's the conurbation, big city, Manchester, big northern city. And so eight battalions uh, raised. They first went into action on the 1st of July at Montauban and very successful fighting that. They're on the, the right of the Somme battlefield, near to the French. And so that's the, the side of the battlefield that did very well. But heavy casualties, but they took all of their objectives. So it was a, a successful start for them uh, in uh, 1916. Pete, I just um, want to jump in and ask a question here because this yeah. is my perception as an Aussie asking about what was going on with the British forces. It seems to me that time and time again when we talk about the fighting in the First World War, it's men from the north that are bearing the brunt. Now, I know that there were a lot of London yeah. you know, battalions formed. I know that there were public school battalions yeah. and you know the, the upper end of society also contributed. Yeah. But it just seems time and time again, if we talk about the gruelling... Yeah. you know, slaughter on the Western Front, <laughs> the poor working class from the North yeah. are extremely heavily involved. Is, is that a false perception? Yes. In a way, it's because they were very keen to have this PALS connection to a city. But for the rural areas and, and the south of England... There are a lot of territorial units in London, so part-time soldiers, so they make up a big bulk of the battalions in in the city. Just as a matter of interest, uh, Journey's End, the 9th East Surreys, you could perceive as a PALS battalion from the south. But there's no big conurbation that they can pin their kind of hat on and say we're all from this city or we're all from that city. So it's partly that it's that, that feeling, and it is, I suppose, it's where the working man is. So the working man, they can all join together, they can all form one of these PALS battalions, and, and off they go. So we do kind of focus on them. Um, but there were as many battalions from rural areas and from the south, but they don't quite have that feeling. In fact, funny, literally today, I was reading how the Ninth East Surreys and the story of Journey's End highlighted that it wasn't just about the PALS battalions from the north. Uh, there, there were these PALS units from the south as well. So, so you do get southern PALS battalions, but you're right. Instantly, when you think about PALS battalions, you think of my home city, Hull, you think of Manchester, you think of Leeds, you think of Bradford, um, etc., all the PALS battalions from, from those areas. It was a very clever, and we're going to go off on a tangent again, if I'm not careful, a very clever recruiting concept. You know, join with the men from your, from your area. They'll all have the same accent as you. And even in Hull, they actually, and I may have mentioned this in previous podcasts, they actually did it on a social level. So in Hull, they actually did it from the point of view of of commercial. So the commercial battalion was people that were in commerce, tradesmen uh, in in trade, so et cetera, et cetera, even down to sportsmen. So it helps in the recruiting. So it's all about just getting these guys together. But of course, by this period... You know, they've lost that. In fact, a lot of the battalions lost it after the the first day of the Battle of the Somme. They had so many casualties that their reinforcement drafts from the city battalions could not keep up and they had to grab people from elsewhere. 
It's a good explanation, Pete, and I think uh, I think you're right. I think having heard that from you, it's probably more to do with geography and population than it is elsewhere. That in the less populated north, there's bigger cities and towns where the, the yeah. Pals battalions could tie themselves to, compared to the sort of the sprawl in the south. Uh, I suppose it's similar to what happened in Australia because when we raised forces for the AIF in Australia, they were effectively Pals battalions. That men from yeah. districts came together and and formed battalions. Yeah. It was the 20th battalion in from my hometown in uh, West Wylong. The men formed went off to the 20th yeah. battalion. Um, but the distinction between the particularly the PALS battalions of the north of England was that the geography was much larger in Australia. The men came from much yeah. larger areas and there was no central city usually to focus yeah. on. So if you were a, you know, a farmer or a, you know, a laborer or a miner in West Wylong in 1914, um, there was no central city to tie the men of the 20th Battalion. So even though they came from the, roughly the same district, they, they didn't have the same unity as those men from Grimsby and Sheffield and all yeah. those other places. Interesting, nice, interesting another, tangent. Well, it is, and there's another, just, just one more. We ought to just add this because it is quite interesting, especially the, the difference between Australia um, and, not sure about Canada, but certainly I can just have to quote Australia. If you were an Australian soldier, wounded, taken out of the line, patched up, sent back in the line, you always went back to the same unit that you'd come from. For a British soldier, wounded, taken out of the line, patched up um, at a hospital, going back into the line, there was absolutely no guarantee, and it was perhaps more likely that you would go to a different regiment or, or another battalion within your same regiment, but you would almost certainly not return to the men that you'd actually left. Uh, and so, again, it meant that that distinction, all coming from the same area, very soon they were dispersed around uh, around the, uh, the the front anyway. That's fascinating, Peter. I hadn't thought of that before, but uh, that's the first time yeah. it's come up. But, um, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, when you think about it, the system of allocating returning men to whatever battalion was you know they were required in makes a lot more sense from a military perspective. Well, it was necessary. It was, yeah. The Australian battalions, by, by, by this stage of the war, some of the Australian battalions were so weak, they could have absolutely done with a top-up of men. And you did have an imbalance. You did have some battalions which, you know, lately in the fighting had not lost as many men who were still getting topped up with their wounded returning from earlier battles, whereas other battalions could really have used that, uh, that top-up. But I think, the, obviously, the esprit de corps and the, the, the unity of, of purpose was very important in the Australian forces, at least from a perception point of view. I don't think in reality yeah. it mattered that much. Um, but we, you know, I think I think the Australians probably went too far in trying to guarantee that men stayed together during the war. Fascinating. I I had not uh, not realised that before. Yeah, it, it is. So let's. Uh, well, we're out of time now. So thank you. It's been a really interesting <laughs> podcast. And, oh, hang on, wait. We haven't done the walk yet. Yeah, there's more. There's more. <laughs> um, so uh, we're packed up. Uh, let's literally get on, on the ground. So where are we? Well, we're very close to a big city. More about that in, in a little while. But we're in a, a small village called Francilli Senlensi, probably. Um, and um, <laughs> When you're in France and listening to this podcast, don't ask for directions based on our no, pronunciation. De- You'll no, get nowhere. Definitely. Um, population 418. Um, and it's on rising ground outside the city of St. Quentin. So we're very close, only a few kilometres uh, away from the city of St. Quentin. Now, St. Quentin was taken in 1914 and in the September. So very early on in the war, the Germans took the city and it will not be retaken until the 2nd of October 1918. 
So for much of that time it was a long way behind the German lines, but by this period, with the Germans falling back in 1917 to the Hindenburg Line, then this is why we are close to the city, is because the city is part of that famous Hindenburg Line. The, the German fallback positions, we've been trying for most of 1917 to break through somewhere on the Hindenburg Line and have not succeeded, even with the famous uh, November attacks using mass tanks at Combray. So things really had settled down and we're just facing each other and sadly we are waiting for that attack. We know it's coming and so we're doing the best we can to create a new system of defence. So where we are, Francilli Senlensi, let's try again, uh, just outside of uh, of St. Quentin, we're in part of this new defensive positions that we've been building where we have, so I'm just describe them, we have outpost positions we then have uh, redoubt positions, and then we have a battle zone, and then we have some trench, more trench positions behind. So defence in depth with the idea that the outpost positions will slow the Germans down. Um, the redoubt positions will stand alone, and that's the, the definition of a redoubt. It's like a dot on the map rather than continual trenches, because you have to remember, for a long time... Continual trenches from the, the channel to the Alps, 700 kilometres. That's all gone. We, we haven't got the manpower to man the trenches. We haven't got the uh, the manpower to dig and keep these trenches in, in fantastic condition. So we are now operating from redoubt positions. These dots on the map with interlinking fire that protects uh, each other. And then uh, a battle zone behind them where we can actually trap the Germans, slow them down if they've broken through. The redoubt positions will hang on and eventually they'll, they'll fall back again. Of course, that's not going to happen, but that was, that was the theory. We even had, behind all of this, another line called the Green Line. That's what we'd called it, which was supposed to be a, a rear defensive line in case it all went horribly wrong. The problem was we hadn't even completed or even started in many areas the green line so it wasn't there it was a line on the map literally but it wasn't there in reality it's so, a great example um, pete these, def- these yeah. British defenses before the spring offensive are a great example of good ideas um, but the practicalities of war getting in the way that as you yeah. say the, the, the last line was was drawn on a map and i'm sure yeah. i'm sure to many commanders looking at that that would have given them a sense of comfort that uh, there was this extra line here uh, but it didn't exist in practicality yeah, it didn't how many machine guns are in those front lines? When you talk about readout positions and outposts and things, I mean, that would have obviously relied on firepower. Were there enough yeah. weapons to go around? to make? Because a bunch, well, of, a bunch of guys with rifles were not going to do much in one of those positions. So were there enough automatic weapons to go around? Yeah. Well, what we've got is the Lewis gun has really come of age. So the, the Lewis gun sections, uh, now a lot more Lewis guns, spare guns. Uh, so they're bristling with, with firepower. And they have to, because a lot of these battalions are, are under strength. Uh, in fact, this battalion, the 16th Man, uh, Manchester, 700 men, broadly speaking. So we have 700 men, should be 1,000 men, so we're already under strength even before the fighting fighting starts. We've also got the machine gun corps, which are supporting them, but... uh, we didn't like we didn't like the machine guns right in the front line at this stage. The machine guns were being used more and more often uh, as plunging fire, almost artillery. They're being they're creating barrages that will sweep across the battlefield. So yes, they're there, but they're not in the redoubt positions. This, generally speaking, it is the Lewis gun that is supporting these redoubt positions. We did a post uh, on our social medias uh, sometime last year. I can't remember when. 
we were talking about the Battle of Mons and Quentin and the Australians fighting there. And um, it just illustrates the point really well. Even though this is much later in the war and it's an Australian unit, it illustrates the point effectively what manpower shortages could do to a unit because it was a picture of uh, an Australian uh, platoon or section, really. And there's supposed to be about 30-odd blokes in this uh, in this platoon. Instead, if you count in the picture, there were nine men instead of 30. So you can see that they're at about one-third strength. But what does that do to their firepower? They still had the same amount of weapons allocated. So of the nine men, two of them were carrying Lewis. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Light machine guns. Um, yeah. So even though, and you've said this many times, Pete, and it's, it's a very, um, very well-made point, and it's very astute that you've picked up on it, is that, yes, it was very difficult, the manpower shortages, but it meant that the men who were in the front line were very well equipped and had a lot of firepower compared to to, to how they would have even a year earlier. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because one of the weapons that these the stormtroopers, the Germans are carrying, is the 0815 uh, Maxim gun. And I know that we both actually own 0815 Maxim guns, uh, not in firing condition, I should say. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, but the 0815 Maxim is very, very heavy, and yet it is their support, the infantry support weapon. And so what the Germans are doing, as they overran these frontline positions on the 21st of, uh, of March, then they very often picked up the Lewis guns, and there was enough ammunition to pick up as well, and to use them uh, against us so this is where the germans actually enhance their firepower as they're advancing by picking up our our lewis guns much better than the 0815 maxim which was still uh, an unwieldy very heavy weapon to uh, to carry uh, as a fast for fast moving uh, stormtroopers 
it ties into our earlier podcast from last year, Pete, we did on Dernan Corps, which was an Australian battle which took place only a week or so after this uh, offensive we're talking about. Uh, well, 28th of March compared to the 21st. It was a week later. Um, but a key part of that story was Stan McDougall winning himself a VC by taking on the Germans. He took on the Germans with a Lewis gun that we strongly suspect he picked up from a German he had just killed. And so the yep. Germans had captured it during probably during the 21st of March and had used it against uh, against the British troops and then came up against the Australians. So it's it's just funny how these little units, these little stories tie in together that the Germans grabbing Lewis guns, then using them against the Australians. And then yep, Stan McDougall yep. grabbing it and using it against the Germans in the, at Dernancourt. Yep. So go back, if you haven't listened, go back and listen to the uh, podcast on Dernancourt. We'll paint a broader picture of, of this, uh, this, this chapter of the war that we're talking about. So this village, let's go back to back to our, our walk again. So we're, we're now we've left hey, the car in do you this get the, village. Do you get the impression that we've we've had our break, we've had our holidays? We haven't actually spoken for weeks. This is the first time we've chatted for weeks. We, we do seem to have a lot to talk about. We're going to have to release a special podcast called Pete and Matt Tangents. But uh, I hope, that I hope yeah. as a listener, I hope you're enjoying uh, some of the extra things yeah. we're throwing in here. So we're standing in the in the middle of this uh, this village. I'm not going to say the name again, and this is where the <laughs> memorial is uh, to the to the Manchester's because the the location we're going to be walking to it's only about a kilometre away from here. It's Manchester Hill. Um, so where's the name Manchester Hill comes from? Well, it's actually from the fighting in the April of 1916 when the second battalion of the Manchester Regiment actually took the hill, and that's where it gets its name from. And it is just pure luck that it's been held by the 16th Battalion of the Manchester Regiment on the 21st of March uh, during the, this this German offensive. So um, both of those battalions are commemorated on this little memorial in the village itself. It's, it is a very small one, um, only inaugurated in 1998, and it's a brass panel on the, on a concrete plinth, almost beside the... The, the always the beautiful village war memorials that the French put up in every village commemorating their dead from the First and the Second World Wars. Um, and so that's that's beside it. And generally speaking, we have the Marie, the, t- the town hall, and sometimes the school close by. And yes, in this case, we have, uh, we have both here. Pete, just um, on the subject of those memorials, yeah. Um, yeah. I know that one was, as you say, raised in 1998, so therefore obviously a modern memorial and uh, done yeah. by descendants and perhaps there was a survivor yeah. or two still left to to uh, to be involved in the process but talk Indeed. to me about the famous the, the british war memorials that we see on the battlefields you know in the middle of the somme battlefields yeah. we'll see you know at the sunken road there's glorious memorial we see the yeah. 51st highland memorial in the newfoundland memorial park tell me about the ones that were constructed soon after the war yeah was it the veterans setting out to build a memorial to commemorate their men? Was it the local French people who wanted to honour units that had fought in that area? Was it citizens from the community who'd lost a lot of men? How did, the, how did these memorials come about? All of the above. Um, yes, yeah, okay. so it, it, well, it, well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, many in various ways, but the the interesting comment about why there is no big memorial from just after the the First World War here is because, of course, this is not a successful action. It's a very brave defence, but we do not have we have a habit, I suppose, of not putting up memorials for when things go horribly wrong. You know, you put a memorial up for where you have success. So most of the memorials that were created immediately after the war in the 1920s, this need to commemorate the sacrifice that took place, generally speaking, they are in locations of uh, success. And so that's the first thing to, to comment. 
quite often they're funded by the battalions themselves. Before all the men kind of dispersed all over, you know, or even after they dispersed, Earl Comrades Associations grew up very quickly because at that point there wasn't the British Legion um, in Australia, the RSL, that's the equivalent for the British Legion, the RSL, where they didn't develop immediately. What you get are all comrades groups, or they're not old at this stage, they're, they're young men still, but these comrades associations are, are formed and quite often on that formation, they decide that they'd like to put a memorial up straight away where that where they'd had perhaps heavy casualties quite often, but success. And so that's why we see some of these memorials going up. Other ones are national memorials. It's been decided that we need to commemorate uh, here, and it's not just the battalion. It is a, a need to commemorate that battle. And then, of course, on top of all of that, we get individual soldiers' memorials that are family-related, where families came back to the battlefields immediately after the war um, and very often trying to track down the bodies of their relatives, couldn't find them, but knew where they'd been buried or where they last fought and said to the local farmer, we'd like to buy a plot of land here and put up a little memorial to, to our son who, who fought here or my husband who fought here. And so we have the, those as well, very often forgotten about in the greater picture of memorials. Um, and then, of course, we have the cemeteries. Now, interestingly, very few cemeteries right where we are, right on this, and that's right the way along this line facing the Hindenburg line that the Germans break through on, for the very obvious reasons, it's going to be the Germans that bury the bodies. Because we cannot, because we've been forced off the landscape. And the sad thing about that is the Germans are moving quickly and they're burying quickly, and very many of the men that were buried in little groupings, little mass graves, even individually, it's very often the, the, their fighting position, their, where they fought and died, and they are going to be buried in those trenches and those redoubt positions, and they're, sadly they're still there. They were not recovered. Some obviously were recovered, but an awful lot were not. And even if they were recovered, it's, it's a few years later and they're, generally speaking, unknown. So they're in, in the nearest cemetery as unknown soldiers. So an awful lot of the men that lost their lives on this day, the 21st of March 1918, have no known grave. Is it Pozier British Cemetery, where the big memorial is, that mostly records uh, men killed at this period of time? Is, is, have it I is got indeed. that correct? It is indeed, and in fact, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Elstob, who's the major character in the story that we're possibly not going to get around to telling in this podcast, um, he is actually lost on the battlefield, and he's a Lieutenant Colonel. And you have to say, even the Germans, generally speaking, uh, could recognise a senior officer and would make sure that he was he was buried properly, but sadly, in this case, not so. He was probably just rolled into the bottom of a trench along with m most of his men who died on the battlefield and buried for health reasons there and there, not properly marked, and he's lost. So he is commemorated on the Poisier Memorial yeah, at Poisier, just out outside of Poisier. Beautiful, beautiful memorial, too close to the road. I could go off on a tangent talking about that <laughs> memorial, but it's it, it, you get a much better feel of it when you step back, and the only way to step back is to go on a road ben beneath the memorial, below it, and look up to it, uh, and it, it's a, a very attractive uh, uh, memorial and cemetery it's a bit of a confusing one because Pozier is one of the most famous australian battlefields a yeah. lot of the aussies killed at Pozier are buried in this big cemetery um and yeah. there's a memorial wall at the back recording all these names of british soldiers which have most of whom have nothing to do with 1916 and were killed in the spring offensive so it's a, it's a little it's bit confusing. confusing and it is um it, it it's somewhat almost misplaced you would say because it, that's such a key area of 1916 and that famous fighting in the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. So the, these, I always, when I take people there, I always go out of my way to point out the, the, the poor buggers that are listed from the, you know, killed in the German Spring Offensive. But um, back to the walk, Pete. 
Okay, so there's nothing else to see in, in the village. It's just a nice idea to get a feel of the village. Of course, the village rebuilt, as they all are, same as my village. We've said many, many times, uh, early 1920s, uh, dates on some of the houses. But this village, because it's close to a fairly big uh, conurbation, I didn't give you the size of the city, of how many people are in the city. Population 54,000. And we're actually in the Aisne here, I ought to say. We're not in the Somme any longer. We're just over into the Aisne. And the next, uh, the, the department next door, uh, and this is the largest city in the Aisne, even though it's not the capital. Fifty-four thousand people in uh, Saint Quentin. I should mention so, uh, as well, Pete, uh, for Australian yeah. listeners, not to be confused. This Saint Quentin is not oh, to be confused yeah. with Mon Saint Quentin, correct? Uh, which is uh, not not that far down the road, but the scene of a great Australian battle in August and September nineteen eighteen. Um, two separate places. So this is the small city of Saint Quentin yeah. in the Aisne it's- department. Yeah, further east. Uh, and relative to this area, it is a, it is a, a fair size uh, city. It's actually on the down at the moment. You know, you get the feel that some cities are on the up, but it's just recently lost uh, some of its uh, its largest uh, businesses, employers in the area. So it's, um, yeah, it's feeling a little run down at the moment, but it's a, a lovely place, well worth visiting. We're not going to really visit it on this tour because that's a podcast in its own right, walking around uh, St. Quentin. But we can see it as we start to walk out of the village and uh, and uh, head towards the Manchester uh, Hill, then we uh, we can actually see the probably the most famous building in the city, and it's the Basilica, the the church in the middle of the the city. You can see uh, you can see that from the these ridges. Uh, we're walking down a road called Route de Dallon, hopefully, um, and after about a kilometre wandering down this road, we hit a T junction, and we're going to turn left up the uh, Rue de Savy um, and into an area known as the Maison Rouge, so the Red House. On our left-hand side, there's a wooded area, and there's an entrance into that wooded area. Now, we're not going to go into there, but if we did, that would take us into the quarry. Now, the quarry is a key to this defensive position. Um, It was there. It's been enlarged slightly since the First World War, but it's no longer a working quarry. But the quarry is there, and uh, that is where... Uh, the headquarters of the battalion was based in the quarry. It was actually uh, not its battle headquarters. It will, in fact, become uh, the casualty clearing station for the fighting. But the, the quarry is there. So we're going to, that's on our left-hand side. We're going to walk past it, past the wooded area. And the, the ground is rising slightly to our left-hand side. Once we've pa- got to the outskirts of the of this Maison Rouge, we're going to turn left. And there's nothing else you can do. You have to walk into the field. Now, if the crops are in, you can squeeze in beside the wood and the field and walk along that edge of that field. And you need to go about 100 metres or so into the field. And that takes you into the middle. And it becomes very obvious the view that you have from here of the position uh, which is uh, known as Manchester Hill. In the centre of it, there's a redoubt position. So let's just get ourselves orientated. We've now walked into that field. We've turned right to look towards Mont Saint. Um, to look, can't oh, said Mont Saint Quentin. Then to look towards Saint Quentin, not Mont Saint Quentin, um, as we've just discussed. So looking towards Saint Quentin, you're looking over a motorway. In fact, there's a motorway b- uh, below us. Then you can see the town itself. Behind us is the quarry. To the right, you've got the road that we've just come from. And to the left, we've got the village that we've just come from. Uh, It's over on our left-hand side, about a kilometre away. So this is the position. There's nothing here to look at at all. So we're just going to tell the story, but there is physically nothing left. Now, interestingly, I had a look at Google Earth uh, just a couple of days ago when I was preparing for this podcast. 
And there are definitely marks in the field. And I got the old maps out and the trench maps and everything. And sure enough, some of the marks in the field are definitely uh, relating to the old trench lines that were here. Now, the other thing I should point out here, that most of the trenches here are in fact German trenches. From their defensive positions before they fell back to the Hindenburg line, we then enhanced them, added our own positions, reversed them if necessary, and then put in these redoubt positions. But there's an awful lot of old German uh, trench lines here that we're, that we're utilising in our, our positions here, looking down on the Hindenburg line and the fortified city of St. Quentin. It's... um. I'm feeling the tension, Pete, of, you know, you talk about these positions and the view down the hill. And again, I'm just feeling that tension of what it must have been like for the men in that line. And I have seen Journey's End and I know that that was palpable, the, the, the tension. Um, just, uh, you know, knowing that you didn't have enough firepower that you couldn't resist, that you were effectively the sacrificial lambs in the front line yep. uh, designed to hopefully slow down the Germans before you were killed or captured. Just terrible. And the fact that men knew it, at least in some of these other battles, um, you, you could say there was a small, uh, you know, a, a small mercy there that the men didn't realise what was about to befall them. But on, you know, in the, in the lead up to the twenty first of March, they absolutely knew what was coming. Yeah, and certainly the the rhetoric from their lieutenant colonel uh, Wilfrith Elstob, um, who will be awarded the the Victoria Cross for this action. He'd already been awarded the DSO and the MC Distinguished Service Order and the Military Cross, and he's one of the originals from the uh, from the battalion when it was uh, recruited in Manchester. Um, his his rhetoric is one of we are going to fight it out here, lads, to the end. There's no going back for us. This is where we we are going to be, and effectively we are going to die here, or or or, or, or we're going to. Uh, um, uh, be, be captured and a lot of them are captured we'll, we'll do the figures later on he'd fought in the Battle of the Somme as well as Elsop so he's a, he's a fantastic very interesting guy he's you just get the feel and he was a big man he was a big man he was a commanding man and you get the feel that the, the men around him would have would have followed him almost anywhere and he certainly doesn't duck his responsibilities and he's everywhere during this battle trying to chivvy people up and he's bringing them ammunition, he's, he's throwing bombs himself and, and getting involved and he will be wounded three times during, uh, during the fighting and sadly will lose, uh, lose his, uh, his life. A um, little bit about him. He was born in Chichester in uh, Sussex, so he's not from Manchester in 1888. And he's, he's the son of a reverend, so he's uh, from a fairly uh, well-to-do family. Went to Manchester University, so that's how he uh, ends up in, in Manchester. Um, he could speak French. He taught in Beauvais in, in, in France uh, uh, for a while, so he'd certainly speak French better than me. Um, he then went to Edinburgh, taught in Edinburgh, so he's a, he was a school teacher as well. Uh, as I say, volunteered in, in 1914 as a private originally in the 16th uh, uh, Battalion, the City Battalion. And like a lot of people, they start pulling people out and saying, Why on earth are you serving as a private? Be commissioned. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant. And that just shows you, doesn't it, by uh, attrition of men, second lieutenant in 1915, and by the time we get to 1918, he's commanding the battalion. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, he's one of those guys. Um, and he was only 29. When he was killed here, he's going to be killed here on the 21st of March, he was only 29 uh, years old. It's extraordinary, so isn't it? The boy colonels, I yeah. mean, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole uh, yeah. movement to remember them, but how young these men were. There was, we, we talk about... Uh, you know the um, Lieutenant Colonel Scott, who commanded the 53rd Battalion at um, yeah. 56th or 53rd at Polygon Wood, and the bunker there is named after him. He was killed there, and he was 26 at the time. And the same started yeah. at Gallipoli as a private. 
just yeah. extraordinary. The, we, we, we think of these as, as old, grizzled veterans, but they're, uh, they're men in their 20s. Yeah. I've got a I've got a, a plaque from an old barracks that was pulled down. It's on the wall beside me here, um, and uh, it's commemorating uh, the death of a lieutenant colonel commanding the second battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, and he was twenty one in nineteen eighteen when he died. Twenty one commanding. Well, Pete, tell me about what the Manchester's went through here during the okay. spring offensive. Um, so I'm just going to use a, a few sound bites that, uh, that that we that were used by the colonel as the as the fighting went on, and and the men were very much aware of 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 this was going to be a fight to the end. The Manchester Regiment will defend Manchester Hill to the last man. I use that as a title and just on my scribbled notes because it's that that's that's what he's expecting. So, how are they preparing? Well, on the 20th of March, they are very much aware that, that it's coming. You know, they are aware they're in the line and they're not going to be out the line and it's going to be their job to defend Manchester Redoubt. So, hence, the Manchester Regiment will defend Manchester Hill to the, to the last man. Why I, I keep saying Redoubt is because the Redoubt is the central point of Manchester Hill. It's got defences all the way around, but it's, it's, it, the Redoubt is where the all-round defence and they can carry on fighting in theory until the Germans are pushed back again and that's not going to happen. So the preparations uh, continue to meet the expected attack. Gaps in the wire are sealed up because we cut our own gaps in our own wire so patrols can go out. Uh, they're all, they start to close them up so there's no gaps for the Germans to break through. They've got a lot of ammunition. It's been brought forward because they know what's coming and so the ammunition is distributed. Uh, all the men have m- m- much more ammunition than they can possibly fire. But at 1,500 hours, I'm going to use 24-hour clock, 1,500 hours on the 20th, they start to get hampered by mist. The observers that are looking from the wood that's slightly behind and to the right, Holnan Wood, can't see properly. And the guys on Manchester Hill cannot see either. They're starting to lose the vision down to the German positions uh, and they're being hampered by the mist. By 2100 hours, it's dense fog. It's absolutely thick fog. And we know that that is going to be the big problem. Uh, how do you see what's going on? How do you see what's happening? They can hear the odd noise. In the days prior to this, they'd heard the trains arriving, so they knew that there were more and more men arriving nearer the front. And again, we get another of uh, of um, of the little, uh, I suppose, sound bites by uh, Wilfred Ulstob, and he he says, "Here we fight, and here we die." So. By the 21st of March, by the do- uh, by the early hours on the 21st of March, 2.30, the artillery opens fire. That's our own artillery, and they're firing because they know the attack's coming. They can feel, feel it. There are people reporting, hearing noises. They know the Germans are moving forward, so they, they open fire on all the pre-arranged German positions. Of course, they're firing totally blind. By now, it's thick fog everywhere. They can't see anything. The observers can't see anything. So they're just guessing that the Germans have moved into those positions. Um, and the units in the battle zone are uh, are literally manning their positions. Uh, what's interesting about that, they were not ordered to. By now, we are getting intelligent warfare. These guys know if the artillery is opening up and they're firing close, the Germans are close. Nobody's told them to man their, their, their battle positions in the battle zone. They man them themselves. And then the German artillery at 4.40 in the morning opens fire. And they predominantly are taking out they've spotted and they've been watching they're taking out communication centers they're swamping the artillery positions with gas so hence driving the gunners away from their guns so we can't fire even though we we can't see what we're firing at we can't fire at all they're driving the gunners away 
But by a quirk of fate, and this is one of the interesting aspects of this fighting, the telephone line from Manchester Hill to their brigade headquarters is open and uncut for nearly the whole of the battle. So it means that we we know exactly what went on, and that's one of the, I suppose, why this is remembered so well, is because it's well recorded what went on and how hard they fought to the last man almost to hang on to Manchester Hill because we were in communication, or brigade was in communication with the battalion. At 4.48, the men uh, manned their battle stations, And again, at 4.53, the artillery, this is our own artillery, opens up again, but on no man's land, right in front of the uh, position, because by now we know that that the Germans are just on the outside and are slowly taking out some of the the battle positions in front of the actual redoubt. At 8.50 in the morning, they change from gas shells to high explosives, and that's the clue. That's the clue that the Germans are going to attack. They're waiting for their own gas to disperse, and they're, uh, they're firing high explosives to drive the defenders under underground. And then our artillery at 9.30 opens up for the last time, and they're literally firing now all around Manchester Hill because they know that it's about to be overrun, or at least the Germans are pushing on all the edges they've got through. And this is where it's interesting. The Germans have broken through in the mist and the fog and the smoke and the gas. They've broken through the positions, and... This has been left to be now mopped up by new troops who are coming up and the stormtroopers are on their way to the next positions and forcing everybody back. This will become a rout in the end. It becomes very, very confused. Units disintegrating under heavy pressure and falling back. I'm just going to talk about the redoubt positions because I don't know if you will know this, Matt. It's quite an interesting. It's one of the things I found fascinating and it's a great shame that most of these do not exist any longer. But so many of these redoubts gave up without a fight. Uh, quite a lot of them did not do what what is happening here at Manchester Hill. They were surrounded. And you have a choice, don't you, when you're surrounded? Do you fight it out? Do you surrender? Or do you every man for himself and try and get back to your own lines because the Germans are now behind you? And we get a mix of all of that. Some of the redoubt positions just surrendered. Some of them fought it out. And some of them fought it out for a while. And then every man for himself and they tried to evacuate. So many officers were captured on the 21st of March on this day that they had to, on their return from their capture, they had to write a report on how they were captured on the 21st of March um, because they felt that uh, that a lot of them had given in too early. So nothing nothing happened. They didn't use it uh, for anything, but I think they just wanted to make them feel uncomfortable, you have to say, by writing a report on how were you captured uh, on, on on the 21st of March, what, what happened. So back to the story. So they're now totally su- uh, surrounded. Um, prior to this, uh, Elstob had moved his headquarters into the redoubt position from the quarry, and the quarry had become... Uh, a, a medical post and in fact the officer Captain Walker was an American he was an American attached to the British Bata- uh, British Battalion so we have an American medical officer, he will be captured in the uh, in the quarry along with all the stretcher bearers and the other men uh, that were there um, we now have fighting all around the uh, the position I'm abbreviating this because I know this this, this could, uh, you could go on with this story for quite some time. Um, and all the time, Elsob is reporting back. He's reporting back and saying that uh, they're, they're almost exhausted now. They're running out of grenades. There's only a few of them left. 
And Elstob is supported by D Company. D Company was with him in this redoubt position. And then it's all the cooks and the bottle washers. It is literally the men fighting with him uh, are the cooks, the signalers, uh, the, the Batmen, uh, people that would normally be behind the line supporting the men in the front line. They are here fighting out to the uh, to the last man. And in fact, the death of the colonel will be reported by the RQMS, the Regimental Quartermaster Sergeant, that man that is normally behind the lines making sure the battalion is, is fed, fed and watered. The brigades uh, received the last message from Elstob himself, and he basically says the men are the, the the men are exhausted. We're down to our our last few men. They're outside the position now, um, and his final words were goodbye. Um, and uh, uh, and then he goes out, uh, and uh, he, he's killed. I'm going to give you an account of his de- death in a little uh, little while. Um, and it's RQMS uh, Jenkins who will actually report the death. So I'm just going to get my book out and just read uh, read the, the the paragraph. I saw Ken Elstob rise to lob a grenade at the snipers, but they shot him. Captain Sharples then tried to pull the colonel's body into the trench, and he too was killed. Later on, our ammunition gave out. A shell plunged into the ground in front of us, covering us with earth, so we scrambled on our bellies under the barbed wire to the quarry. As we reached the quarry, a German officer in a field cap covered us with his pistol. I levelled my empty rifle at him when someone shouted, "'Don't shoot, you'll have us all killed!' At that time, there was about a dozen prisoners in the quarry, but afterwards there was quite a procession brought in off the line. In the hot afternoon, we were marched to St. Quentin, carrying the wounded slung in blankets. So that's the, the account of the, uh, of the death of, uh, of, the, of the colonel, fighting it out uh, right uh, to the end. If you want to listen, now this is a great, a great uh, resource, and Peter Hart uh, used to another historian I'm sure that you've come across if you listen to podcasts. He used to record for the Imperial War Museum uh, accounts of soldiers. Now, th- this one wasn't by him, but it's Private Charles Heaton, a stretcher bearer who was down in the quarry in the 16 Manchesters, and you can listen to his uh, his interview in 1987. Uh, so it's held in the Imperial War Museum Sand Archive. It's av- available online, so you can listen to it as I did uh, yesterday. Um, so that gives you the story of the capture of them uh, in the in the quarry. Now, because this was so well uh, uh, recorded by the men at Brigade, we actually get, um, uh, he's awarded uh, the Victoria Cross, and it's dated the 6th of June 1990 when it, uh, it's uh, uh, in the London Gazette. So I'm just going to read you his citation. For most conspicuous bravery, devotion to duty, and self-sacrifice during operations at Manchester Redoubt near St. Quentin on the 21st of March 1918, During the preliminary bombardment, he encourages men in the posts in the redoubt by frequent visits, and when repeated attacks developed, controlled the defence at the points threatened, giving personal support with revolver, rifle and bomb. Single-handed, he repulsed one bombing assault, driving back the enemy and inflicting severe casualties. Later, when ammunition was required, he made several journeys under severe fire in order to replenish the supply. Throughout the day, Lieutenant Colonel Elstob, although twice wounded, showed the most fearless disregard of his own safety and by his encouragement and noble example inspired his command to the fullest degree. The Manchester Redoubt was surrounded in the first wave of the enemy attacks, but by means of the buried cable, Lieutenant Colonel Elstob was able to assure his brigade commander that the Manchester Regiment will defend Manchester Hill to the last. 
sometime after his post was overcome by vastly superior forces and this very gallant officer was killed in the final assault having maintained to the end the duty which he had impressed on his men namely here we fight and here we die he set throughout the highest example of valour determination endurance and fine soldierly bearing you can't really do any better than that can you he's it's... he's actually done everything that he that, that he could he was certainly everywhere, wasn't he? Doing like even carrying up the ammunition. We, we, you know, the. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a battalion commander rather than a general. But again, the the perception of the First World War that it was all the privates in the front line doing all the work, and their commanding officers were sitting back, smoking cigars and sipping tea. He was everywhere doing everything. I mean, what an example to his men that would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Um, I'm just going to give you the uh, the casualty figures for the day. Now, the, uh, much uh, I, I found about three or four different accounts giving different casualties to uh, uh, for the day, but so I'm just going to read out an overview. Um, the men holding the redoubt, which you have to remember, this is just one company, and then the attached ranks, eight officers and 160 men, remembering that there are 700 men in total here. But the men holding the redoubt, F, eight officers and 160 men, only two officers and 15 other ranks survived uh, from that group. Now, I found another account that says that those were actually the ones that got back, those 17 men were the men that got back to our lines, the rest uh, were either killed or taken prisoner. So there's a debatable account for both of those. But of the 700 men in the battalion, 74 officers... No, that's not right. Uh, now I don't know without looking, so you'll have to ignore that bit. Uh, I think it probably seven officers. Let's say seven officers. I'll need to check that. And 74 men had been killed and over 500 taken prisoner. I should start rummaging through my book, but I won't. I'll leave, I'll leave somebody out there to have a look at how many officers were killed. Uh, but basically, it's the it's the, the battalions wiped out. Seven hundred, you know, starting with seven hundred men and over five hundred taken prisoner, and the and the rest either killed or, or badly wounded. Then, yeah, it's it's gone. The battalion has completely gone. It just shows the nature of the the confused nature of the fighting, Pete. That no one can agree on who did what and how many people were captured. And we we see this time and time again in yeah. every war when there's a complete overrun and the destruction of a battalion. There's few people left to tell the story, and obviously the survivors can't give an account of another five hundred blokes in the battalion. So yeah. it's, it's it's always very yeah. confused. Also interesting to note there that um, how many men surrendered. That the yeah. as much as the here we fight and here we die. Um, men yeah. are human, aren't they? And when you are surrounded are. and there's bullets whacking in all around and men are falling all around you, you, yeah. you're not, you're not going to fight on for a hopeless cause. Why would you? Th- Why would you give your life men- in that in that situation? Yeah, I think the men that fought on were with him um, because it, it's his, it, it's him and his, his outstanding work that he did that, that encouraged them to continue fighting. I think the guys that were away from officers always are liable to, to surrender if all the officers are being killed and they're in little groups. And, of course, in this type of fighting you were. There's non, no lines of trenches where you, you know, your, you know, your mates are to the left and the right. These are small defensive positions that can be totally surrounded and then you have this big question, how long do you fight on for when you feel that you've done as much as you possibly can? And the Germans overran them very, very quickly. As I say, some of these redoubt positions didn't fight at all. They couldn't. They didn't see the Germans. They could, didn't know what to shoot at because the fog was so thick 
but they could hear the Germans all around them. And in fact, when you read accounts of this action, you realise that uh, when the mist did lift and they could see left and right, they realised that they were already, even before they'd opened fire, they realised that they were fairly much surrounded already. So it was, uh, yeah, it really was that, that, that fight to the end. And it's just it's just human nature. Soldiers don't on it either is. side don't typically yeah. give up their lives for no. no reason when they know they're surrounded. They just they just don't do it. People don't want to die, yeah. and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. We can't fault them for that. It, it's a reflection on the nature, the the savageness of the German attack, and how quickly they were overrun. Mate, just a it was a gripping account of that action as you as you went through it. I, I think I, I really like how you did that with each you know each hour ticking by and the their situation becoming yeah. more perilous. Just extraordinary. But uh, before we move on. Um, we mentioned before the podcast something that we didn't know if we'd have time for, but I really want to include it, the German cemetery uh, nearby. Yeah. Do, do we well, have time, do you think, to throw in we a We do, yeah, I'll just, I'll just quickly mention it. We, because, we don't do it often uh, enough. We, we, people, and no. it's a question I get all the time. People say, where are the Germans? Are they German? First thing, people say, where are the German memorials? Obviously, yeah. there's very, very, very few German memorials in France and Belgium, as the Germans yeah. were the aggressors and the occupiers. Um, well, but there are the German int- cemeteries, so... And this are and these are German memorials. That's why this is so interesting, and why I really wanted to make sure that, that I mentioned it because the road that we that we walked up to the uh, to the hill on to Manchester Hill, if we walk back down by the side of the wood onto the road, turn left and continue towards Saint, Saint Quentin, that road will actually almost take us in uh, to an, another road, uh, Rue de la uh, Chaussee Romaine which we turn left and, and walk along, and that takes us directly to the German cemetery. So it's about two, two and a half kilometres, perhaps, uh, from where we're standing at the redoubt position. Uh, and it takes us to an original German cemetery. And it is a fantastic one. I only discovered it about two, well, probably more now, three years ago. Um, created in 1914. Um, and it's got this extraordinary two bronze statues, Roman soldiers, they are of Roman soldiers, uh, and that's probably why they survived, standing in front of a wall with the names of men on it, a beautiful uh, carved uh, wall. And that was inaugurated on the 18th of October um, uh, by the Kaiser. So in 1915, by the Kaiser. So it's, uh, he came here to uh, inaugurate this, this uh, German cemetery. Now, because it's behind the lines, a long way behind the lines in 1915, it was quite safe. And you have to remember that this was then... Um, an, an undamaged town. The town was very little damaged. It was uh, the headquarters. I believe that the Kaiser actually had the headquarters within the, the city. That for a later podcast, I'd like to do a podcast, a, a walk around the city itself. Um, so it's uh, it's just a fantastic cemetery. It's the standard, as we will now see, um, aluminium, black painted aluminium crosses with often four names on. Uh, but it's uh, it once must have had uh, stone crosses and wooden crosses and but it's still very very beautiful. Uh, it's large, uh, six thousand uh, two hundred ninety four individual graves, um, of which twenty two are Jewish graves. I point that out because they look different. They're actually a, a headstone rather than a um, than a cross. And we also have uh, one thousand nine hundred thirty five uh, Germans buried in a mass grave uh, uh, as well. So it's big. At one time, it would have had an awful lot of French in here as well because the Germans would have buried Frenchmen in here, soldiers that are dying of wounds that uh, died in the initial capturing. And British soldiers were buried here for the same reason. Uh, they, they were both in this cemetery. They were removed. There are also 117 Russians uh, in the uh, in the cemetery as well. Now, um, no, I'm, am, I, am I right in saying that? 
Uh, no, that's in the French cemetery, which I should move on to as well. But let's just finish with the German cemetery. Um, so, it, so it's a, it's uh, it's an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, cemetery, um, and uh, it's got a bit of everything. Say so the mass graves, the the the, uh, the black crosses, and uh, yeah, well worth uh, well worth a, a visit. I will just mention it because it would be unfair not to. Not that far away, it's also at this side of the town, is the uh, St. Quentin National Necropolis for the French. And that was created in 1923. You'll see it as you drive into town. If you're driving into the town, you go past it. I go past it every time I go that way to go onto the motorway. Uh, and that has 4,947 uh, uh, French soldiers, of which 300... 3,954 are individual graves and it's that cemetery that has the 117 Russians buried in it now I just literally found out why the Russians are there they were German uh, prisoners of war so captured on the eastern front and brought by the Germans here to work as labourers and obviously killed uh, while they were working as labourers and eventually they're buried here in this in this uh, cemetery as well and then there's two ossuaries of 1,319 French soldiers so in this very small area um, on the uh, uh, on the west side of the, the town of St. Quentin we have these, the German cemetery and the French cemetery. I think those numbers sum up better than anything else Pete, just the scale of the death, that's the thing we can't yeah. comprehend how many people died how yeah, many families so, yeah. you know, were, were grieving just in yeah. because of yeah. this little corner of the battlefield just absolutely yeah. extraordinary. But Pete it's been, it's been wonderful, a, a part of the battlefield we don't explore very often a chapter of the First World War we should know more about. So thank you very much for this. I mean, we've it's been a long podcast, but there's a lot to cover in this. It's a it's a it's a story that isn't well enough told, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be intrigued and uh, and and surprised they don't know as much about this as uh, yeah. as they do about other chapters of the war. Just really fascinating, mate. It is. I mean, it's, when you think about it, it's, it the, the, it's, it's a last stand action, and it's one of those that you could almost put in, you know, with Rock's Drift. Though it's, uh, it, but it's not as well known. Obviously, Rock's Drift. Everybody knows about the Zulus at, at Rock's Drift, but this was a real, you know, that 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 to the last man uh, defense of this position, this Manchester Hill. So yeah, it's, it's it's good to bring it to people's attention. It should be better known than it is, and hopefully we've done our part to uh, to, to yeah. shine some more light on it. So, Pete, as always, thank yeah. you very much. I'm excited to be back for a new year, a new season of the podcast, and we've got some pretty exciting walks coming up, including the ones that I know are very popular of you getting out and about on the battlefield. So hopefully before too long, I'll be able to travel <laughs> over there and join you. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, doing some live podcasts from the battlefields, the two of us together. Yeah. Don't forget as well that um, I know things are a little bit uncertain at the moment with various uh, outbreaks of, of coronavirus, etc. But hopefully we're, we're seeing that, uh, that burn out now. And so don't forget that in September, Pete and I are touring the battlefields together, the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. So if you want to come with us to see those Australian battlefields of the Western Front and a lot of these British ones as well. I, I, I th- Pete, I'm keen to head out to the Aisne on that tour. So I think uh, I think we will head out to this sort of area. I don't know whether specifically we'll go to Manchester Hill, but it's going to be good. You and I together leading a tour. It's it's pretty exciting, mate. I can't wait for it. No, I can't wait. And I, I, literally, I was thinking that we could tie in the German cemetery because the German cemetery is so unusual to have these original memorials there. It'd be well worth a visit. And it's not well visited, I have to say. Very difficult to find on the map because they don't mark it. I notice on the uh, IGS maps, the Ordnance Survey maps for this part of France, it's not marked on. So you need to just go online and, and check where it is. Well, certainly um, there are some places left on that tour. It's the Matt McLaughlin Signature Tour. Uh, there's only... Um there's only 30 places on that tour and only a handful of places left. So if you would like to join us on that tour, it's in September 
2022, September this year. So please do join us. Also, uh, you can buy us a coffee as well now if you want to support the podcast. Um, you can go to buy me a coffee uh, and support us uh, in uh, in that regard um, because uh, every little contribution helps and uh, and makes it easier for us to bring the podcast. So go to buy me a coffee. We'll link to it in the show notes and uh, support us if you wish to. Um, Pete, great to be back. I'm looking forward to a busy year of great podcasts. But uh, once again, thank you for this one. It's been fantastic and uh, I look forward to the next one. No, it's a pleasure, Matt. Must try and not go on so many tangents. <laughs> never, Pete, never. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to follow us through social media where you can learn more about each episode we've just recorded on Facebook and on Twitter under the the tag Battle Walks. You can find us there and more information about each episode. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, you can now buy us a coffee. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to contribute a small amount, which really helps keep the podcast going and bring you new episodes. Pete, we really appreciate the support we get from our listeners, don't we? We certainly do. Uh, we enjoy uh, producing the podcasts and, uh, and telling the stories, and I like uh, getting out on the ground. So, yeah, um, if you'd like to buy us a coffee, it's all helpful. So if you want to support us, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks, and there you can make a small contribution to keep the podcast going and to help us bring you better episodes. Thank you for listening to us, and we'll see you next week. 
So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.